Now, two Bible readings just now. We're going to uh, read from uh, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. So if you find that on page 1177, and then you might want to put a finger in Luke's gospel, chapter 15, as we read the parable of the prodigal son, or at least part of it. Um, which is on page 1049. So Luke 15 and Ephesians 6. And in fact, before we do that, we're going to read the verse from Exodus that tells us what this commandment is that we're thinking about today. So Exodus 20 and 12 says, Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now we come to our first of our readings, and it is in Ephesians chapter 6 from verse 1, page 1177. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. That's Ephesians chapter 6. Then we turn over to Luke chapter 15, and we're going to read the first part of the parable of the lost son. So from verses 11 to 24, 11 to 24, so page 1049, Luke 15. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, There was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us these readings from his word. Well, the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land your Lord your God is giving you. Alan gave me uh, a little Moses. Uh, this is what the Sunday school children got today, I think. Uh, a little Moses with the Ten Commandments, uh, uh, holding the Ten Commandments. He's very, very happy. And, uh, 
I don't remember all that many things as a child. I don't remember all that many things that I uh, won, but I do remember once winning a fancy dress competition. And I, I don't really know what the occasion was, but I remember parading along the main street of Kilkeel dressed as Moses. In fact, I looked uh, remarkably like that. And uh, I had a full-length robe, and I had a cotton wool beard, and I had uh, two polystyrene tablets that my mother had painstakingly written out the Ten Commandments on. And uh, just like this one, uh, on uh, one commandment, on one tablet, she had written out commandments one to four, and the other tablet had six uh, at five to ten. And um, I, I, I did very well in that uh, competition, really. I think there were only two other people uh, in it, but I, I did uh, remarkably well. And, and that way of thinking of the Ten Commandments... The two tablets of the law is, is very, very common. We, we talk about the first four commandments, those commandments that uh, talk about what it means to love God. Jesus uh, summarized the, the law in that way, what it means to love God, that sort of vertical relationship. And then the second tablet of the law with the second six commandments uh, dealing with what it means to love our neighbor. Now, actually, the scholars sort of suggest that maybe both of the tablets of stone had all Ten Commandments written on them. It was very common in those days if you were doing a treaty, uh, ancient Near Eastern treaty, that, that you would be two full copies of the documents. There would be one for each party, as it were. And Moses had both of these uh, copies, and perhaps it was that. But, but if that is the case, it hasn't stopped us talking about the two tablets of the law in this way. And that being the case, we come this morning to the beginning, as it were, the second tablet of the law. So the beginning of what it means to, to love our neighbor, uh, to, to have that horizontal righteousness. And, and uh, we've seen what it means to love God. These, these tremendously uh, uh, powerful commandments, have no other gods, don't worship idols, don't misuse God's name, remember, remember the Sabbath day. It makes it clear in that first tablet of the law that God is to be treasured and, and prioritized above all. And then as we come to the second tablet, we might wonder what is it going to lead with? What's going to be the, the big headline commandment? And we might be surprised if we hadn't heard them before because we get to number five, honor your father and mother. And it seems an odd place to start. If you were in fellowship group on Wednesday night, uh, you might have ended up with a, a bit of a discussion about some of the, the, the order of these commandments and the order in which they come and the implication that there's a certain priority in them and a priority even within those two sort of tablets. And so it seems perhaps strange that as we begin to think about what loving neighbor means and loving on a horizontal level, that, that we should lead off with honoring father and mother. It doesn't seem as important, for example, as murder or adultery or some of those other things. And yet it's very, very important. And whenever we see it for what it is, it shows us just how important God considers the family to be, the role of parents to be, and that's what we're going to think about a little this morning. We're, we're, we're going to uh, basically talk a little about the family. I think here's, here's where we go. Uh, roughly three big themes. Uh, we're going to look at something about God's design for the family. We're going to see why it, 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 it is, is a failure and, and, and yet are called to honor our parents within that. 
And then we're going to see just a little at the end about hope for the family. So that's roughly sort of where we're going. So, so what's, what's God's design for the family? Well, what's the basic problem with human beings? You, you might remember a story about the Times, I think it was, the Times newspaper that, that held this sort of a survey many, many years ago and asked people to write in and answer the question, what is wrong with the world? And of course, it was G.K. Chesterton who responded so famously and said, dear sir, what is wrong with the world? Question mark. I am your sincerely G.K. Chesterton. And of course, he had it right. The problem of the world and the problem of human beings in particular is our rebellion against God. We, we don't want to submit to God's authority. That was the original lie that Satan peddled in the Garden of Eden. He was saying to our first parents, God is a tyrant. Come on, Adam and Eve, he's holding you back. And you should really step away from living under his rule. Of course, the thing is that God is not a tyrant, even as we've seen in the parable of the prodigal son. He, his rule is good. It is a rule of blessing and peace. But our, our first parents swallowed that lie, and therefore every one of us is, is born with this inbuilt bias to rebel against God's rule, this tendency to rebel against God's rule. And, and, and whenever we reject God... We, we think that we are God. The world should revolve around us. And so the message that Jesus comes and preaches is repent and believe the good news. In other words, turn around from your rebellion and come under God's rule. See, what we really need to recognize is that we must submit to God's authority, that he is boss over us. Now, one of the places, you see, where the groundwork of the gospel is done is in families. It is in families where children are to be raised by God's design and are to learn to live under authority. Parents are, are God's gift to children to help them learn this. They are to learn from their parents that they are not the center of the universe that they cannot do what they want all of the time. Now, sometimes you'll hear someone commenting on somebody else's family. Have you ever noticed how somebody else's family is really easy to fix? Do you ever notice that? And, and, and other people's children are really easy to raise, you know? And, and sometimes you'll hear somebody say, oh, the children rule the roost in that house. You ever heard that? Maybe you've said it about me. Uh, and... and we, we do generally see, don't we, a, a much greater deference to children in this generation than in previous generations. And that, I think, is, is one of those little indications of a society that's losing its moral compass, it's losing its way. Because children are to be cared for and cherished marvelously, but not submitted to. Because all we are doing if we submit to children is confirming their inbuilt notion that they're the boss and ultimately they need to come to realize that, that God is the boss. A really great book, uh, not a long book, by uh, Tim Chester and somebody else called uh, The Gospel-Centered Family. Here's what it says. 
It says, don't let your child rule the home. If you do, you'll be teaching them that they are king in their lives. They're not. It won't prepare them for wider social interaction, and it won't prepare them to meet the king. This is really important. I've really, I've found so many helpful things this week that, that, that's really been blessing me as I've thought about this. And so, so parents are to, to show children that it is a good thing to live under authority. And that's why this commandment is where it is. Parents prepare the way for every new generation to meet the king. That's God's design for the family. But parents are not only living under, showing that living under authority is good. They're also to demonstrate that that authority is good. That God is full of grace. That God's rule is full of grace. Because God, after all, sends his son to die for us. The king that our children are to meet dies on the cross for his enemies. The story of the prodigal son shows us that God is a gracious father who welcomes his wayward children. So whenever you're a, a parent, perhaps, who is dealing with a strawberry toddler or a rebellious teenager, they need both to learn to live under authority and to learn about a God who welcomes his enemies and gives life gives his life for his enemies. So again, that, that little booklet comes up with this quote, your number one aim as a parent is to show how great it is to live under God's reign of love. God's reign of love. So you can see that this a placement of this commandment shows us God's design for parents and families. It's where we're to learn that basic truth that we are not God. And so it's a hinge between those two tablets of the law. And this is why disobedience to parents is seen as such a big thing in the biblical story. It shows it's part of that basic rebellion against God and his world. Listen to some of the things that the Bible says. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, says that this is what will mark a society that is in rebellion against God. Romans 1.29, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, greed, evil, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. To Timothy, he, he tells us what the last days will be like, in the days in which we live. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brittle, not lovers of the good. So you see, that overthrow of God's established authority is a mark of the desire to overthrow God himself. And of course, one of the marks of a godless culture is it takes what God has said is wrong and it makes it funny or, or trendy or cool. It's cool in some circles to be disobedient to parents and, and to loudly want to be free from them and, and indeed to, to do what you want without restraint. 
But you know, there's a picture in the Bible of, of someone who had that sort of freedom. It's a picture of the demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5. He'd no family responsibilities. He'd no responsibility to people, anybody who came near him. He attacked them. He beat them up. He did what he wanted. He was absolutely free, and yet he was absolutely enslaved. And you see, that's where the devil's promise of freedom apart from God takes us. You notice that this is a commandment with a promise. Paul points that out in Ephesians chapter 5, that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Now, that doesn't mean that if you tidy your room, uh, you will live longer than the kids that don't tidy their rooms. Uh, but what it is promising is a widespread blessing to people where this command is upheld. It's a promise that God's people will enjoy together, that people will enjoy together indeed. In the first context, of course, it went along with obedience to God and staying in the land. They would not be ejected from the land. But more generally, that command is key to a stable family life and the good of society and shows that that rests upon stable family life. Family is the building block of society. So one of the things that we say whenever we marry someone is that one of the reasons that God has ordained marriage is it was ordained for the welfare of human society, which can be strong and happy only where the marriage bond is held in honor. So, so all of this is to say, here's what God thinks of the family. And here's why this commandment is here. And it shows why God says, honor your father and mother, for there is a, a God-given role for parents. So that's the first thing. That's God's design. What about failure? Well, here's the, here's the newsflash. Every parent fails. Every parent fails in this role to a greater or lesser degree. None of us has or have had a perfect father or mother. And bearing that in mind, it is important to note a few things here. Notice that this command is to honor your father and mother. It's not to obey them here. Later on in Ephesians, Paul tells children to obey your parents. And, and at that stage, the word there is for little children. It's children who are under the authority of their parents. It is, uh, you know, primary school children, early teenagers, whatever the culture, uh, the cultural boundaries were at that time. Now, even then, of course, we know that there are limits to that obedience. We should always tell children that if your dad is a well-known burglar and tells you to climb through somebody's window and open the door, that you really shouldn't do that. That's not a, a good thing to do. But, but, but generally, the way that young children show honor to their parents is through obedience. But as children get older, that relationship changes, and it should. So the command to honor your parents is, is permanent. The command to obey is, is, is much more time-bound. And part of what a parent's job is, is to, to let children go. And, and we know that where that's not recognized, there can be all sorts of problems. So we know, for example, that, that many problems occur within marriages where children do not properly leave from their parents and cleave to their husband or wife. Husband and wife is to, are to have 
first loyalty always, and that's really, really crucial. So, so this command does not say to obey parents, and, and not only that, some, some parents are uh, just, just evil. We, we, we've seen cases in the news where, where, where parents are, are just downright evil and, and would draw children, even older and adult children, into all sorts of, of bad and wrong things to do. It also doesn't say here that we've got to agree with our parents either. There, there may be things that we disagree over. Some of us will have parents here today who, who disagree about our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they may think it's unnecessary or even harmful. And so we can't agree with them, but we do have to honor them. One of the writers tells a story of a a young man in the days of slavery in the United States when all of those debates were raging really strongly and his father was a slave owner and he was moved by his convictions and his faith to work for the campaign to abolish slavery. And the story is, as the story is told, it's clear of the great lengths that he went to in order that he might honor his father while really disagreeing with him over this particular issue. So if you're in a situation where you're disagreeing with your parents over something, even if it's a matter of conviction to you, you need to find ways in which you may honor them also. Don't let that one area of disagreement blind you to all that has been given uh, to you in your parents. And and don't let that command to, to, to honor your father and mother be broken because of that particular disagreement. So it's, it's not obey here, it's not honor, it's not agree with, but it is honor. A word that is used for honor is a word that we've said before is, is connected to the idea of weight, heaviness. It's saying, give them the, the weight of honor, the weight of, that, that is due to them. Let the, the, their worth and their value rest upon you with impact. Remember we said, a few weeks ago, that that our culture thinks of God as weightless. He rests lightly upon the culture. It's insignificant. He's insignificant. And so this is saying, give your parents significance. Don't don't let them be of no consequence to you. And what that's going to look like is going to be different for different people, and it's going to be different at different times. So when you're younger, for example it might well involve you speaking well of them when they're not around. How you speak of your parents might be one of those things, as a teenager, for example, that that sets you apart from your non-Christian friends. When you're older, it, it might involve you caring for them practically in some way or another, recognizing that they can't do all the things that they used to be able to do. It might mean you taking time with them that you don't particularly feel that you have. It might mean caring for them whenever you don't really feel like it or calling them whenever you don't feel like it because they really want to know what's going on in your life. I've been really helped by this, by something that Tim Keller did on this. And he talked about finding ways as as you get older and your parents get older, finding ways to allow your parents to live their lives through you. That was his little phrase. 
because he spoke about understanding a particular verse in the scriptures in Isaiah 49, where, where God promises Israel that they will wear their children like jewels. You know, you imagine someone sort of putting on a brooch or, or putting on a, you know, a, some sort of ornament, as it were, and, and being proud of it. And, and God says in Isaiah 49 that Israel will wear their children like jewels. And he, he said he didn't really know what that meant until he got a bit older, and he went along to some of his children's graduations and, and realized that that in a weird way that he hadn't realized, what his children did within the world said something about him to the world. So, so our, our parents are, are bound up in our lives, and we need to find ways of letting them live through us to some degree. Keller also talked about forgiving our parents. You see, we know that we, we were made as people to receive unconditional love from our parents. And probably not that many of us got that because lots of folk are broken. Everybody's broken to some degree and, and not able just to give that unconditional love the way that we know that we should and, and that maybe even we want to at times but feel not able to. And, and some of us then go through our lives angry or disappointed by our parents. We, we either maybe never measured up, we spent years trying to please someone, or at least the thought of it, and, and maybe we never got from them what we were looking for. And, and we still need to honor parents like that, even if they're no longer here. And, and one of the ways that we can do that is by forgiving them. And we're able to do that if we know that what they couldn't give us, we may get from our Heavenly Father. He's the only one, really, who can give us real love, real acceptance, that, that unconditional love. It's the only perfect parent that they're ever is. And if we drink deeply from that, you see, we can let go of, of some of that hurt perhaps and, and be free from some of those chains, those family chains that, that can bind us. Families that are in failure, still we have to honor our parents. What, what about this last thing, hope? Hope. Sometimes people look at families and, and, and they're, they're tempted to despair. We, we look at other people's families and, and we think that they're perfect and so on. We look at our own and we, we think it's so desperately broken. And, and, and there's certainly nothing like a family to help us see our own shortcomings and sins. But, you know, the other message of the Scriptures or one of the other messages of the Scriptures is that God is, is tremendously for families. He's for broken families even. And whenever we see the story of the Bible, we see God at work in the most dysfunctional of families. Families where there's hatred and abuse and, and murder and favoritism and all sorts of things. And yet, yet God is there bringing amazing grace and amazing hope. And you know, he does that for us too. And how is he able to do that? Well, he does that by 
coming near, by getting involved. It's amazing that he should do that, that this most holy God should, should roll up his sleeves, as it were, and get involved in the messiness of family life, because that's exactly what he does. Indeed, he does more than that. We have a, a God who, in Christ, stepped out of the glory of heaven and into a family. And in that family, he was misunderstood. He was thought to be mad. But he kept this commandment. He honored his father and mother perfectly. And at the same time, he perfectly obeyed his heavenly father's will. So much so that he saw it as so basic to him that he described it as his food. He says, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. So, so you see, Jesus was obedient to his heavenly father, always, because his father was absolutely perfect, is perfect. Obedient to the very point of, of death, even death on the cross. And you see, because of, of that work, because of Christ's obedience, there is hope for us as individuals, but there's also hope for our families. There's hope for children who have failed. There's hope for parents who have failed. There's hope for people who are sinners. Jesus is the only one who's perfectly kept this commandment, and he did so for us who haven't and who who don't. And that's the good news. So, So you see, this is why this commandment is here. It's why it's so important. It shows us what, what God's design for our families is, which we should strive for. It's realistic about our failure. It calls us to honor our parents even in the midst of that brokenness, and it gives us his hope. Let's take a moment to pray together as we think through what this commandment might mean for us. Lord, we're, we're so aware that as we look at this particular part of your word, that our experiences here today are, have been so different. For some of us, our, our families have been, maybe continue to be, a source of, of deep joy and, and gratitude. For some of us, our, our families have been or continue to be a, a source of pain and, and difficulty. For many of us, we, we lie somewhere in the, in the middle. Lord, we thank you for your design for families. We thank you for the fact that, that, that we have been called to, to demonstrate to an upcoming generation that, that there is a God, that there is one to whom we are accountable. And we pray for, for those with younger children especially, that they may be able to do that to show how good it is to live under God's reign of love. We pray, Lord, for those whose children are up and away, who who miss them desperately, who perhaps sorrow about some of the decisions that they take. Help us to find peace even in the story of the prodigal son of the father who longed for the return of the one who was lost. 
We pray, Lord, for those who have the opportunity still to honor parents. Pray that you'll help us to figure out how to do that well, to bring joy to them in their later years, to point them to Jesus also. We pray for those, Lord, who who miss parents because they're no longer here. And help us, Lord, to find ways of honoring them even in their memory. Thank you, O Lord, that you are that perfect Father, the one whose reign is sovereign and whose rule is love. Help us to find peace and joy under your rule that we might then live for you wholeheartedly. We pray in Jesus' name.